Everyone has a story, and I believe that sharing your story has the power to connect people. I'm a working mom, wife, and seeker, and nothing lights me up and brings me more joy than having meaningful conversations. And one of the things I love to talk about is psychedelics. In December 2021, I experienced my first psychedelic journey with psilocybin. It was one of the most profound events in my life, and it opened me up to a deeper spiritual growth and helped me to heal. And now, talking to those who've experienced the therapeutic magic of psychedelics and hearing about their personal journey has become my passion. Mindful Trip is a safe space to have conversations that demystify and destigmatize the use of plant medicines. Conversations that allow us to have deeper connections with ourselves and others. I hope that sharing these intimate, funny, and inspiring stories helps you find the answers you're looking for. A wise friend said to me, all you can do is follow the threads and see where it takes you. So I hope you'll join me in unraveling the threads, staying open, and trusting the journey. This is Mindful Trip. Mindful Trip content and the views, thoughts, and opinions of the host, guests, and contributors is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional legal advice or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Consult with the medical provider or mental health care professional about your health-related questions. Mindful Trip does not encourage illegal activity, including but not limited to the illegal sale, purchase, or use of controlled substances. Hi, and thanks for joining. Today, my guest Jill Sitnik shares her inspiring story of surviving childhood abuse and trauma and how MDMA was critical in helping her heal from PTSD. Jill Sitnik is an author, educator, and YouTube advocate for MDMA for PTSD treatment. Her mission is to provide hope for those suffering from PTSD, challenge misconceptions surrounding psychedelics, and equip others with the knowledge to transform their own lives. Your support means a lot, so please subscribe, download, and share with friends and family. I'd also love to hear what resonates for you, so send me your comments. Hi, Jill. Hello. Thank you for having me today. This is exciting. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. I've been listening to your audiobook, so thank you for allowing me to share in that. And so I'm Super. really excited about having this conversation with you. I'm thrilled. I think you have an amazing podcast going on. You tackle some really tough subjects, and I'm just really honored that you're allowing me to have this conversation with you today. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So let's start off. Jill, can you share with me a little bit of your childhood and your background? Give me a sense of what I need to know about you to understand what led you to try psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. Well, so I am a child of the 80s, and I never really thought my childhood was that much of a big deal. Like, I knew it wasn't great. I used to put a curse word in there to describe it. But since I never really talked about my childhood, I didn't know the level of trauma that it included. So mm. at a very high level, my childhood was tinged with uh, physical abuse from my father, mental abuse from my father, a clinically depressed mother who 
attempted suicide multiple times uh, mm. up until I was the age of five. She ultimately tried to shoot herself to end her life when I was five. She was pretty desperate to get out of an abusive situation too. Mm. And then after the age of five became multiple households, pretty frequent food insecurity, certainly mm. poverty, being thrown out of both homes by both parent at one point or another. When I was 19 and on my own, it was kind of like, yay, I'm free of them <laughs> to a certain oh extent. Yes. I just didn't know. And then at that point I didn't talk about my childhood. And so I specifically didn't talk about my childhood because I knew it was so different from everybody mm -hmm. else's. I didn't have holiday memories. I didn't have beautiful kind of celebration kind of memory. So I was always very quiet. And therefore, I never mm. quite knew just how traumatic my childhood was. Well, when you say that you knew that your childhood was different from other kids or your friends, what was going on in your home that you just knew in your gut that it just was very, very different? Oh, I mean, my father was a Jekyll and Hyde. He would mm. be quite bubbly and, and kind on the outside. But once you were alone and there weren't other eyeballs, you were being cursed at, you were being hit. My father, unfortunately, was a narcissist. Some people reading the book think he was a psychopath. I don't know. He was never diagnosed. But there was clearly trauma that he was carrying that he couldn't mm -hmm. deal with. And he just kind of took yeah. it out on everybody else. And my mother, along with all of the suicide attempts and not being able to take care of me for a number mm -hmm. of years after that suicide attempt. And when she could finally kind of be in my life, there were lots of drugs and still a lot of depression. Mm -hmm. I mean, at 16, I was one of the group that put my mom back into a mental institution. So I was always pretty much aware that my life was different than most, mm -hmm. <laughs> at least the people with whom I worked in my 20s and 30s. <laughs> right. And how were you coping as a little kid, you know, back then, if you can remember, what were your coping skills just in terms of survival? Oh, the coping skills were the survival strategies that have gotten me throughout my entire life, trying to be a very good girl, not making a lot of noise, huge mm. people pleaser, huge people pleaser, huge codependency that I did not have my own emotions. I regulated basically on whatever emotion my father and my mother were experiencing so that mm. I could protect myself. You know, you could see when my father was starting to go off the rail a little bit, yeah. I back off. I never really was allowed to get angry. I definitely controlled tears. I mean, mm -hmm. it's even kind of a struggle today. I'm very much aware of the energy of the room, of other people. Yep. Uh, and that's just a survival skill. And remember too, after my mom shot herself, I was with a variety of relatives. I think I went to like three-ish, <laughs> it's hard oh to remember, three-ish kind of different homes between like age five and seven. And I needed to be the kid who stayed in the background because these weren't really my homes. I was very much aware that I was a guest. I was a visitor. And uh, so, yeah, lots of coping strategies in terms of be a good girl, stay quiet, and don't make a fuss. Well, being hyper vigilant is 
a direct reaction because of that traumatic upbringing, the PTSD. So yes. can I ask you with your mother attempting suicide numerous times and then the one time with the shotgun, mm -hmm. how did that affect you? And how old were you when this happened? So I was five when she went to that length and my father was kind enough to keep a loaded shotgun in the house. Uh, we all know that when you're suicidal, very often you kind of test the waters wow. a little bit to try to get some help. So she had already tested the waters. She had a maze on her arm from, mm -hmm. you know, the razor blades and things. And so it's very clear that he wanted her to no longer be in this world too. Mm -hmm. My father and I walked in on her after she had done it. So I still have that kind of vague <laughs> memory, but I think the internal trauma feeling was just a being alone. I was five years old. I didn't know any different. I totally personified that my mommy didn't want to be near me. My mommy didn't mm. want, you know, to take care of me. My mom wanted to abandon me. And I think it wasn't until I was like 16 and mom and I really talked about it. And I understood much more about my father that I was able to heal that trauma point, but definitely a real sense of nobody really wants to take care of me. Mm. Makes oh me gosh. tear up a little bit. Yeah. It, I can feel it. Like even when I was listening to your audiobook, people call it like the mother wound, which is the connection to your mother. And yeah. to not have that growing up, especially during those pivotal years, is really detrimental. And it's so damaging on so many levels. So many levels. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so then what happened at 19 years old that both of your parents ended up kicking you out of their respective homes? Were they split up? Were they divorced by then? Or were they still together? Or they were just living separately? What was going on in the home? Yes, I'll go chronologically. After the suicide attempt, my mom obviously needed to have quite a bit of recovery time. But during that recovery time, um, they, they were also working on their divorce. So by the time mm. I was seven, they were completely divorced. Mm. I had been living with different relatives. By the time I was eight, I went back to live with my father. And I was with my father till about eight to 10. And he threw me out of his house. And then I went mm. to go live with my mom from 10-ish to 16-ish. And wow. she threw me out. And so I was living with my father for the last year and a half of high school went off to college, got back that May, June, that first year of college. And my father thought that he could start hitting me again, the way he mm -hmm. had done my entire childhood. And I just said, no, I'm done. And I actually called my mom who I hadn't really had a great relationship with. And I said, I'm desperate. I think he's going to come back and he's going to really hurt me because I stood mm -hmm. up to him. And that was not something that he really liked happening. And she said, well, look, I'm in the process of moving, but you're more than happy to come with me for a couple of months and figure out your life. And I was like, okay. And so that's what happened. I moved in with her for a couple of months. She wound up moving to a different state and I was on my own. And for the first time of my life, didn't have either one of them kind of dictating my experience in the world. How did you feel when you left your mom's house, was it a feeling of freedom and relief or was it a feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm out here on my own. I don't have any sort of safety net or somebody to support me. I mean, this is years ago. I was absolutely terrified. And I'm going to say this for anybody out there listening, getting away from the constant mm -hmm. abuse and 
negativity. I mean, the sad thing about my mom being clinically depressed, remember they used chemical imbalance vocabulary back then. Her chemical imbalance was never straightened out. Mm. And so to continue being, I'm going to use the word marinate, to continue being marinated in the life and the thought process and the negativity and the sadness of my mother and the abuse of my father, the absolute sheer terror of being on my own at 19 and working two jobs and not having money was better (laughs) than trying to make peace with either one of them and stay in their way of thinking. If that makes sense, that's how bad it was. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to think that at 19, getting away from both your parents is actually safer for you than staying with either one of them at that time. It was. They were they were two people who had experienced a ton of trauma when they were younger. I now can understand that. It's not like I knew that. I don't know what the stories were, right? which obviously came from their parents. And I was just, I was done. I was mm-hmm. like, I have a choice. I can continue to be like them and live in this world, or I can start to live a different kind of life. And it was absolutely terrifying from like 19 to 25 until I got my first teaching job. Mm. I was working multiple jobs. I was going to school full time. I was doing everything I could. I was living on pasta. I was doing everything I could to kind of start having a living wage. And it also took that long because my father had a bit of a stalker in him because I had actually left my father and never communicated with him. And so those years were scary in terms of money, scary in terms of getting on my feet and always kind of looking over my shoulder because I never Mm -hmm. knew if my father was going to be around and suddenly have hands around my neck because that's what Mm -hmm. he would, that was his MO with my mother, just kind of show up and attack her. (laughs) So until I got my first teaching job and had a little bit of financial security, I was super, super hyper vigilant. I bet. I I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine living in that kind of heightened fight or flight mode all the time. The adrenaline running through your system all the time, making sure that you're going to be safe at any given point. So you mentioned a little bit about from 19 years old into your adulthood. I want to jump a little bit forward. So what was the trigger that led you to try psychedelics for therapeutic purposes? Were you in talk therapy at this point? What led you to try MDMA? Well, yeah, we definitely have to skip a couple of years. So (laughs) I was not a fan of talk therapy, to be completely Mm. candid. I had seen my mother work with several therapists. I had had a couple of therapists as a child that I almost think were like court mandated, to be honest, Mm. with the divorce. I'm not exactly sure. And I didn't have a lot of respect for the work. I didn't see my mother improve. from what I could see. So I didn't have a lot of respect for talk therapy. In my late 20s, I also started a very uh, stable, loving, long-term relationship that I Mm. now understand absolutely regulated my nervous system because that fight or flight and those highs, my partner, Carl, he was there to kind of, it's going to be okay. It's all good. Mm. The kind of conversation that I had never really experienced before. So all of those anxiety behaviors, all they did was fuel a type A work ethic that just got a lot of stuff done in a really good way. Fast forward, I'm 46. He passes away, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I'm going through massive widow's fog. 
18 months after he passes. So at 47, the widow's fog is dissipating and I have a massive panic attack over a work email that was like a level one, like zero issue. Yeah. But my body flipped out, flipped out. I was a thousand percent sure I was going to lose my job, never be able to get another job, lose all my savings, lose my house. And the, the line I use in the book is I was going to be living in the car with my pets. Mm -hmm. I was immediately in that like poverty mindset, even though I had lots of checks and balance. Security was hugely important to me. Yeah. And I couldn't get rid of this panic. My body was freaking out. And I do this all the time because like, you know, my boom. And I was uh, becoming suicidal because I didn't see an end to this feeling. Mm. I went back to my therapist who had helped me with the grief because you can only talk about grief so much with friends. At, at some point I needed some professional help. And when I went back to my therapist in reference to this panic attack, after about two months where I was not improving, she happened to mention to me, take a look at maps.org. That's the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Mm -hmm. Take a look at the clinical research around the psychedelic MDMA for PTSD. And if you'd like, she was actually in a program to become a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist mm. specifically for trauma. And she said, you'd have an opportunity to work with me and my mentor, who is also a medical doctor. And I originally said no. At first I said wow. no. I was like, psychedelics, Why? that's for people who... Oh my gosh. I had all the stereotypes of like the egg in the frying pan and I wasn't a drug user. My mom had been on different drugs her entire life for depression. Yeah. None of them had worked, but ultimately she made me read the body keeps the score, which explained mm -hmm. to me trauma in the body. And I looked at the clinical research and honestly, Min, here's the situation. I was suicidal. I was not improving mm -hmm. and I didn't see a way out. And I almost had like nothing else to lose, you right. know? And so that's why I said yes. Wow. And when you were in this suicidal period, were you on prescription medications, pharmaceuticals, SSRIs, or you were not on anything at the time? Well, Butrin, I would say about six months before this panic attack, because even with the widow's fog, my emotions were still, mm -hmm. I'm picturing like an electricity, still very much on fire is maybe a good yeah. way to describe it. And yeah. the Wellbutrin kind of calms it. Mm -hmm. um, but the Wellbutrin did not stop the panic attack. And I had to actually get off of Wellbutrin before we could do an MDMA journey. So I think that's also important right. to note. Like I was more than willing to say, look, this isn't working. I'll get off of that and move there. But that was the only pharmaceutical. Because again, I didn't have any real faith in right. Right. pharmaceuticals that it was gonna work. helping. Yeah. yeah. So then once you made this decision that you're like, well, I have nothing to lose. I might as well try this MDMA. So then what happened next? A lot of preparation. I mean, we started talking about this process in the late spring, early summer. And my first journey day was not until September. So oh, we're wow. talking quite a bit of talk therapy, setting intentions. My intentions were all about fear. I didn't understand why I was so terrified mm. of the universe when, to be quite candid, once I got away from my parents, the universe has been spectacular to me. Mm. 
but I didn't see any of that because in reality, my body was reacting like a toddler and the toddler's life was definitely not safe. And that's what was happening. So I would say weekly or biweekly, depending on when me and my therapist could meet and then meeting my guide, we had a couple of sessions where it was the three of us just talking. I mean, I'm very clear in the book that the process for me is 40, 20, 40, 40 percent talk therapy preparation before the journey. 20% is the day of the prescribed psychedelic being in your system for MDMA, for PTSD therapy. And there's other therapies that are probably a little different. And then the last 40% is the integration. So, I mean, I went from late spring, summer, preparing for the journey, the journey in September, and then the integration from September through December for the Mm. first round of therapy. And it took me three rounds to no longer qualify for PTSD. So it's much faster than talk therapy, but it isn't overnight. Right, right, right. It's not a quick fix. Nothing is a quick fix, especially when you have that level of trauma. I have to assume you had complex PTSD. You know, it's funny. We didn't use that vocabulary because, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, do I need to change the title of my book? In reality, yeah, I was marinated in abuse for 20 years, so probably, but I don't know if I'm going to change the book now and confuse people. (laughs) Change the title. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's okay. People understand what PTSD is, and then I think if you add in the word complex, they're like, wait, isn't it already complex that it's PTSD? Yeah, yeah. More and more people are are understanding the complexity behind long-term abuse. Yes. And I also just want to point out that- all the steps that you took before you even did the actual MDMA therapy was actually the right way to do it. When it comes to psychedelics or plant medicine journeys is you have to be so thoughtful about the practitioner or the guy that you're working with, your set and your setting, your mindset, making sure that your mindset is in a place that when you are going to do this journey, that you are in a really good place mentally and that you're ready for it. And then also your setting, your environment, making sure that your environment is safe and comfortable and that you know that you are going to be protected while you were in this journey because you are in such a vulnerable state. And the fact that you said 40% for you is the integration, which is actually the hardest work that you will do. It's not even the journey itself. I've definitely experienced in my psychedelic journeys is that The journey itself is actually not the hard part, quote unquote. Yes, you're going to have some challenging moments during it, but really it's the integration afterwards. It's like, how are you going to now take what you have learned, the messages that you have received, and somehow figure out a way to integrate it into your day-to-day life? And how are you going to start to make some subtle changes or even big changes, right, to really shift your life? in a way that you know it needs to be shifted. So tell me what happens now that you have decided to do MDMA in your first journey. Set up that experience for me. Okay. So first I just have to say, Min, it's just thrilling to have a podcast with somebody who has experienced psychedelics in this way. And you articulated it so well in terms of being in an enhanced state, but the integration is the work. Uh, Because there's so many misconceptions as to what it's like during a journey Mm -hmm. that come from people who were not in a protected therapeutic environment. So there's there's differing stories out there, right? 
Yeah. And I do hear sometimes from people where they'll say, oh, you know, my friend had a really horrible, scary experience. And I'm like, listen, I'm not going to discount that they actually did, but what was their mindset going into it? What was their environment? Were they doing it more for recreational purposes? Do they have a very clear intention going in? These medicines are not to be messed with. If you are not doing it in the right way, yes, you will have probably a very scary experience. But if you're very mindful and thoughtful about it with very clear intentions, then yes, your experience hopefully will be eye-opening and it will be so expansive and helpful to you and very healing. For me, my journeys have been incredibly healing, healing Mm -hmm. on levels that I did not even anticipate on so many levels, generational levels, emotional, physical healing. So I'm just so eager to dive into what your experience was like this first time that you did your MDMA journey. Okay. Okay. So the first journey is all about safety. It's all Mm -hmm. about making sure that the patient understands there is safety. So I had a very short first journey. My inner Mm -hmm. children did not feel safe. They were totally Mm -hmm. testing the waters. I jumped out of the enhanced state. Like I snapped out at five hours, but for the very first time I heard my inner voice. And I know some people who have never heard their inner voice are like, oh, now she's crazy. There is no inner voice. Whereas other people Mm -hmm. are like, I've always heard my inner voice. What do you mean? So that was literally the first time that my system had slowed down enough that Mm. I wasn't in that fight or flight that I could actually hear my inner voice. And it's funny. I was like, there's this like snarky, smart woman kind of (laughs) telling me I need to live. (laughs) And I remember my therapist and guide laughing because I was like, I don't know who she is, but I like her. Like we know who she is. So I always tell people, I don't remember much. I'm super thankful that my doctor's voice recorded my sessions so that I could go look at the transcripts. There was a little bit of a a blip with the second journey, but I have the two transcripts. And for the very first time in my life, Mm. I was able to explain to two people how terrified I was of my father because my body was not reacting as easily as I can say to you. I know my father, if he had been in that room, would have had his hands around my neck. I couldn't have said that in polite company with friends. It was just too terrifying. So I was able to kind of finally target the major fear and some other things in terms of like, it was very clear. I didn't think I deserved to be born. I wasn't a good enough child. And most of guiding work is letting the patient go where the patient is going because the medicine has wisdom. And I know that sounds a little woo-woo-y, but it really does. Your trauma, your subconscious knows where it needs to go. So a guide usually is just kind of there to kind of keep the guardrails. Sometimes a guide or a doctor will step in when there's clearly a dangerous thought pattern and Mm -hmm. I don't deserve to be alive. I shouldn't have even been born is kind of dangerous. Mm -hmm. So My guy did step in there and push back. And I will say that because I jumped out of it so quickly and my guidance therapist very candid with me that this was very much about safety. You were testing us. Type A, always, always go getting Jill. I immediately felt terrible. I was like, oh my gosh, I wasted everybody's time. All this work. Mm -hmm. Mm -mm. 
half an hour after the journey, my boyfriend was driving me home. And the way that the MDMA during the integration worked for me is that I would feel something like I definitely felt like I was an inconvenience, even though it was all of a half an hour drive. I was like, I'm such an inconvenience. I can't believe I had to ask him this. And suddenly this inner voice brought up memories from my childhood where it was very clear I was an inconvenience to my parents. Mm. I internalized mm. those feelings from my parents at those particular times. These are very specific memories. And I internalized those as I'm always an inconvenience. You don't ask for help. You don't expect mm. help because you just aren't worth people helping. And the integration in the car was, is that really right? Is that really the situation when your parents mm. and you were the inconvenience? Were you the inconvenience or did your parents not have the coping mechanisms to take mm. care of a child? Yeah. It was the first perspective shift. And at that point I said, okay, I think there's wow. something to this therapy. Wow. Okay. So this is the, the first session, which went on for about five hours. And was it in a clinical setting? Was it in your home? Where was the actual location that you did it? I went to my guides. He had a, he had like a separate room and it was mm -hmm. beautiful. Okay. I'm always cold. I was able to bring anything I wanted, by the way, too. So anything to be comfortable, but there were lots of blankets. There were like three different areas to the room. It was beautiful. So a seating area to sit and chat, a little ceremonial area for people who want to kind of mm. get into that kind of thing. A nice mattress with so many blankets, because when you're in an enhanced state like that, you do kind of get tired and you just kind of want to lay down. Yeah. So the journey space was lovely. I'm always hesitant when sometimes I see the Netflix things and like this poor person is on a bed without any covers yeah. and there's like two people watching. I'm it's like, please sparse, let them yeah. bring covers. Yeah. <laughs> Something cozy and warm and like safe. And yeah. yeah. I mean, Jill, I had, when you were saying that you had that moment when you were in the car, that kind of like aha moment, yeah. even just that thought process that you thought you weren't worth taking care of, that your parents didn't care about you, that you weren't worthy of their love. That really resonated for me just in terms yeah. of the feelings that you must have had when you're a little girl, not even having the language at that age to fully express oh. how it was making you feel. And there's no way as a five-year-old that you could be processing that kind of information. So with the book out and the website and people kind of reaching out to me, I've learned this is pretty universal mm. that we as children cannot figure out that our parents can't take care of us or that a caregiver would not be caregiving. There must be something hardwired in us. And this is my opinion. I'm not it a is. doctor. Yeah. So at some point, what's the reason for my six foot two, 230 pound father beating me when I'm four years old? What's the reason yeah. for my mommy wanting to get away? Yeah. We internalize that stuff because we can't figure out any other way. And unfortunately, it's imprinted so early right. that you just live with it. I just lived with it, not even really yeah. understanding that I was imprinted that way. Absolutely. And that you had internalized it so deeply, but then it was manifesting in all of these other ways of how you were coping with just life in general, life. constant yes. fight and flight mode. So then after this first experience and having this like aha moment, when was the second journey for you? 
and what happened there? Yeah. So I need to normalize for people. This is super important. In my opinion, Mm -hmm. I went from September until December, my doctor and guide, my therapist and guide were all about when Jill is ready because the map protocols are very, very specific. Um, but I was integrating. So the idea of those memories coming up and kind of looking Mm -hmm. at them differently, I was heavily integrating those first two or three weeks because there was just so much trauma at the surface. So integrating lots and lots and lots of information, you kind of get to the point where your intentions and the medicine from the very first journey, think of it as like any sort of medical procedure. At some point you hit a certain healing point and then you might have to have additional surgeries or procedures. And so I would say October, halfway through November, I was integrating. And then end of November, mid-November, December, I was still experiencing physical, my emotions were all over the place. In the book, I talk about constantly crying. You know, this is not a fun experience. You're dealing with a lot of stuff. And it's almost like that first journey took away the first layer of trauma. And then we were ready to start working on the second one. And because it was the holiday break, we decided on December so that I could have a couple of days without working to really Mm. focus on. I had learned that. That was the other tip too. really give your brain a couple of days after to just fully absorb. I think integration is a little bit stronger for me when I do that. So yeah, it's that long. And then my third journey wasn't even until um, June. So even six months integration from the second to third. Wow. So share a little bit about what that journey was like, the second journey in December. Second journey was during a snowstorm. And so (laughs) my therapist couldn't get out, unfortunately, but I was so ready that Mm -hmm. my guide was super, super kind. And and we just showed up with shovels in case we got snowed in. (laughs) My second journey, I was so excited that something actually worked, that I tried to hack it. I wanted to be more awake during it. I wanted to understand what was happening in my brain. Therefore, I heard more of my chatter. I'm a chatty (laughs) person. My poor therapist and and my guide, I talked their ears off. So I was just kind of like hearing me talking about what seemed to me a whole bunch of different puzzle pieces that Mm. made zero sense. But I was in that journey for like seven-ish hours. I definitely trusted my guide. I knew the process. Again, I beat myself up after I shoveled out my car. I got in my car and I just expected, I don't know why I expected miracles, but I did. And I was so disappointed that I didn't have immediate insights, which is ridiculous because that's not the way Mm. it works. And I knew that or whatever. I was in the car. I'm waiting for the car to warm up. And the image that came to my mind was of trying to find the hole in a tire. You put the hot tire in water and so you can see the air bubbles. Yeah. My mind was telling me, relax. The MDMA Mm. is going to find the trauma it needed to find. You didn't do anything wrong. Just because you were trying to like understand it more, we're good. We're fine. MDMA for me does work with a lot of imagery. So it was a cold day. It was a day that I've found frustrating with all the puzzle pieces, but a phenomenal amount of work was done that day. And you can tell from how long my integration went after Mm. it. So during that second journey, 
Did anything come up with the visuals? Did anything come up with your father and your mother and giving you information about why they were the way they were? Or was that something that happened in your integration? Yeah, that's a great question because a, a huge amount of curiosity. No, I was still thoroughly wrapped up in my trauma around mm. them. A lot of guilt about not loving them. Mm. A lot of shame about not loving them. A lot of understanding patterns. And I remember at the time I was searching for a house and there was a lot of going on with missing Carl, leaving a life that I had led for 20 years being so stuck, being so scared. Again, the intentions were about fear. To this day, I still do not know because my parents have passed. I don't mm. know what traumas they faced. But after the, the first and second journey, was it, even though I didn't know their traumas, for yeah. the very first time, I had empathy for them. Mm. Up until that time, they were just blankety blank bad parents after the journeys is when I started to be able to see they weren't born with those deficits. Yeah. And interesting, they hadn't talked about their childhood. I didn't even know where they lived other than the general city. And yeah. none of that had ever been a red flag before. No real specifics, still definitely dealing with my trauma. And the empathy started to come for them. If my father was still alive now, not that I would want him in my life, because he certainly wouldn't have changed, but just the difference in terms of how sad I am at both of their lives. Right. That they kind of got stuck in with their trauma. Right. So then what were some of the insights that started to reveal itself to you during this next phase of integration after the second journey? Oh gosh, I'm trying to remember the specifics from that particular journey that I was a good decision maker. Mm. <laughs> okay. Well, that was a, I, that's your survival skills, right? I know it sounds ridiculous. I know it sounds ridiculous, but here's the thing. At 16, I allowed my father back in my life. I had been living with my mother. At 16, my father came back into my life for some reason, and yeah. I allowed it. I was 16, but I allowed it, and he basically blew up my life. I had to leave halfway through my junior year, go to another school. My class rank tanked, scholarships went away, and I was living in a one-bedroom apartment with a domestic abuser who, as the months went on, was showing up in the morning in my bed with me. Nothing ever happened that I know of, but I definitely knew that I was living with a predator in any variety of ways. I blamed myself for that my entire life. I was a terrible decision maker. I let my father in my life. And that's one of the reasons why my entire life I would second guess. I was always playing it safe, being second, always yeah. wanting to know what was around the corner because yeah. I was so blindsided by my decision. Now right. you and I both know I was 16. They were the adults. I couldn't control anything of that. Even if I had said, don't hang around, I guarantee at that point, I would have probably gotten, my mother and I definitely would have gotten injured. Like, yeah, I can see it now. So there was a lot of work to be done there. And then once I kind of got through that in March, I had a really, really bad 
nightmare, which is what led us into the third journey. But I don't want to get too far ahead. I want to make sure I address your questions before I get too ahead of that. What I was curious about is what were some of the insights that were coming up for you in this second round of integration, besides the fact that you are a good decision maker, that you didn't need to second guess yourself? Good decision maker. It was okay that I didn't love them. I I wasn't deficient. Um, I was not a fundamentally mean person. Mm -hmm. So there was a memory of when I was probably three or four and whatever it was, it was pretty severe. I think I've actually blanked Mm -hmm. some of it out, but it was of my father coming after my mother coming up the stairs and I was at the top of the stairs and he threw me down the stairs and threw me against the wall and then went back upstairs and beat my mother. I have always my entire life known that I was a mean person, that all my friends and even my long-term relationship with Carl, I was able to hide it. And I'm Mm -hmm. fundamentally a mean person. You know where that came from? That came from that toddler crouching on that Mm -hmm. first floor after being thrown into the wall and not helping her mother. As a toddler, I took responsibility. Who wouldn't help her mother who's getting beaten? A mean little girl. I'm a mean little girl. So healing that was really big too. Wow. Oh my gosh. I mean, how was it for you? Like what was going on in your body as these revelations were happening Did you feel a sense of relief, sadness? What was happening with your body as it was starting to release some of this trauma and the energy that you had been holding in your system for so long? Yeah. So I would say that if I went into the therapy with my body at a 10, 10 being the Mm -hmm. highest, we're just going to arbitrarily use that fight and flight at a 10. After my second journey, I was still at a seven or an eight. I was still suicidal. I I still didn't see the end of the tunnel. What I'll also normalize for everybody is the amount of repetition. So Mm. I'm a journaler. I didn't have a choice. I had to have an outlet. And to rewrite the brain, I mean, literally during an integration, for me, I was rewriting the script. So at 16... Mm. It wasn't that I was a bad decision maker. It was that for whatever reason, my father decided he was going to cause chaos. I was not a mean little girl. I was trying to survive. What was a toddler going to do anyway? I just would have gotten beaten up even more. Yeah. I would say making those perspective shifts, making those reframes, honestly, five, 10, 15 times journaling about them. The repetition was huge. And I don't think people understand this yet. Cause I don't think enough people are kind of talking about it. Oh, wait, was I really a mean little girl, mm. but for the neurons or for the neuroplasticity in the brain to actually make that a lasting thought requires right. repetition. So the same way that we learn with flash court. So anticipate thinking about situations over and over and over again. And I'm always hesitant with people are like, well, integration is not necessary. And I'm like, my brain had to relearn how to think. And that took time. Absolutely. Just rewiring your brain and also rewiring your subconscious. 
to truly believe that in those situations and during your childhood, that there was no way that you could have protected your mother. There is no way at 16 years old, you would have known that letting your father back into your life would lead to those things. Right. Right. I mean, and I didn't have any sort of power to change those things either. Like that was the other weird, shameful thing. Like I somehow had the power to change those things and my decision. I took responsibility for things that were not in any way, shape or form mine. Yeah. I was just going to say that is that I think a lot of people who have dealt with trauma or really difficult situations is that they put the burden on themselves that it's like, well, it was my fault. It was my fault that I was in that situation. It was my fault that I ended up at that place. That's why this happened. That somehow these horrible things that happened to you is because of you. Right. Somehow you're responsible for it and responsible for all these people's behaviors. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Somehow if you, That's the if second. You could, yes. If you could control somebody else's behavior, then these things would have never happened at five years and, old, and sixteen years old. Yeah. And I'm, def- I'm deficient in a way because I couldn't control a man in his forties, his behavior. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, of it, course. it sounds, it sounds so ridiculous. If I was talking to a friend, they would have been like, well, of course that wasn't your fault, but understanding it at a conscious level versus your inner child subconscious. And I don't know where that exists in my head. I'm just arbitrarily Mm -hmm. doing this are two different Mm -hmm. things. Totally. I also think it really goes back to just the fact that we're all animals by nature. And I think to not have that kind of nurturing, loving relationship from the get-go with your parent, especially your mother or even your father, people talk a lot about attachment styles is that you don't develop the healthy attachment style. And so that also affects how you deal with relationships, not even romantic relationships, just relationships with people at work, your friendships, even just how you relate to other people in general. And you don't even realize it because you're just kind of going on with your life and trying to survive. You're always in constant survival mode. And until you really take a step back and say, wait, something is not right. I need to figure this out. I need to figure out how to heal and figure out why I am doing the things that I'm doing. Yeah. Okay. So, yep. So the second revelation after the second MDMA experience and the, the very long integration. So then what happens in your third MDMA journey? This one is the wild ride. This one is the ride that in the book I included transcripts because it was so transformational. Mm. So in March, I had a nightmare of myself as a toddler in my childhood home downstairs Mm. for some reason. And I didn't have a childhood head. I had now a child of the eighties. So bear with me with this reference. I had a black Pac-Man like head that only had jaws. I didn't have Mm -hmm. eyes. So it was this little girl with this monster kind of head Mm. crouched. Long story short, I remembered it was so vivid. Talking to my therapist, we actively worked on visualization. I think using imagination is completely underrated when it comes to psychedelic uh, um, mental health treatment. But that's what we did. We tried to use my imagination. I eventually got 
that little girl to look like me at that age. Mm. I was well fed. I was age appropriate. I could not get her out of that house. Mm. So from March until June, there was something where the door to that house didn't exist. I couldn't even bring her over to the window. Mm -hmm. The symbolism of that little yeah. girl is trapped in that house. It was just like so yeah. obvious. So in addition to the normal intention of fear, another intention for the third journey was how to get that little girl out of that house. Okay. Third journey comes around. It's about an hour and a half, two hours into the journey. And my therapist says, so why don't we talk about that little Jill and getting her out of that house? And in my enhanced state, I said, which Jill, the one mm. downstairs or the one that's upstairs? And I'll give my therapist and my guide credit. They just rolled with it and they were like, which one would you like to work with? <laughs> you know, the most therapist kind of answer, right? Yeah. And my subconscious had a little girl locked in her little five-year-old girl, because five is that pivotal age, yeah. locked in her childhood bedroom that was all white, was all stark. She was about half the size of what a five-year-old should, should be. She mm -hmm. was dressed all in black like she was ready for her own funeral. She was malnourished and she was hunched over and she was twirling her hair. When I was a child, I used to twirl my hair kind of out of my head. And I said to uh, my therapist and guide, well, I think maybe we should talk about upstairs, Jill, because she's dying. It was a tough journey for me. It was tough going near that five-year-old. So we would kind of make little steps, go back, little steps, go mm -hmm. back. There were lots of times where I had to go silent and we had actually discussed in May the potential for using psilocybin or magic mushrooms in addition to MDMA Yeah, be because we were going on two months and I couldn't resolve this weird nightmare. And so mm. it was pretty clear there was some sort of block and just nobody knew what it was going to be. So we had had that yeah. discussion where Jill, if we run into a wall can we consider using some psilocybin? Mm. At that point, I totally trusted my doctors. I'm like, I'm down for it. I've never used magic mushrooms, but whatever. And so that's what wound up happening about halfway through the journey with the MDMA. We couldn't get her out of the house. I had both downstairs Jill and upstairs Jill mm. literally in the kitchen of my house. Malnourished Jill literally would not move. She mm. just would not move. And at that point they gave me a very small dose of magic mushrooms. And I went with my eye mask and the visualization was, and this is the coolest part. Have you ever seen like a blooming onion and how that kind of opens mm -hmm. up? Yeah. Like a load, almost like a lotus, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, maybe I should use that analogy. Yeah. So the, the house went completely dark around malnourished Jill, because mm. this is the real Jill. Let's be honest. This is the real Jill. And yeah. in the kitchen, the house literally unfolded around me. And I was just kind of like standing on a tile and the house just fell away. I could see, you know, the nighttime sky. Wow. There were wow. lots of stars. And then almost like a snap, I found myself in a beautiful garden. And the symbolism was, you're out of that house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And I sort of remembered that good work had been done, but I do mm. remember asking at the end of that journey, did we get that Jill out of the house? And my therapist and guide, they were like, yep, we got her. <laughs> She's free. She's free. She's free. And so integration, those first two weeks were all about that little five-year-old malnourished Jill using a ton of imagery. Again, a lot of imagination because I could literally picture her. I would be walking around and she would be around. And so like she was growing up, I was making sure she was fed. And this is all in my imagination. I was right. making sure she had good clothes. And if I was going for a ride, it'd be like, hey, little Jill, you want to go for a ride? It was just so much. It was so joyful mm -hmm. for me. I was reparenting my little five-year-old, which again, I know sounds a little bit weird, but if you just allow your imagination to work, it can be beautiful. Absolutely. And yeah, ultimately healing that trauma point getting her out of that house. By the end of the summer, I was no longer suicidal. I could see a future. Wow. I still had trauma to deal with. I've had subsequent journeys, but technically I no longer qualified for a PTSD diagnosis by the end of that summer. Oh my God. That is incredible. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Not that you didn't do such hard work to get to that point, but- that's incredible, Jill. Honestly. Yeah. From it's hard work. And I still deal with triggers and things of that sort, but I'm not yeah. suicidal. I haven't been suicidal since that healing time. And that's kind of like the criteria per se that I know my doctors paid attention wow. to. So what's the criteria that you no longer have PTSD? Is that you're just not triggered by specific things? For, for me and my doctors. So mm. I don't know what the official MAPS criteria is, but for me and yeah. my doctors, maybe a better way to say it is like the capital T traumas had been yeah. resolved because my body was not in fight or flight unless I was triggered by something the yeah. way that we all get. And yeah. I write about the idea that somewhere I had heard on a podcast, what's the color of your future? Mm. And until the end of that summer, the color of my future was pitch black. I didn't see a future. Wow. By the halfway through halfway, the second journey and through the third, suddenly it started to look a little pastel-y. Suddenly mm. I could attribute a color to the future and wow. not being suicidal. And I think I worked with them like two more times over like the next two, three years. So there were some things that needed to be resolved and I have stayed in therapy, but thank goodness I, I would not have made it much longer if I hadn't had the therapy because from my PTSD perspective, from that toddler's perspective, there was no safety. There was no way out. There was no future. Wow. So how has your life changed since that third MDMA journey? Huge. Huge. I would say that I stand up for myself a lot more. While I'm very much aware of the energy that's in the room, I'm very much aware that I deserve to have my own energy. So if my decision-making anxiety was a 10 before the treatment, my decision-making anxiety is at a three or a two. Mm. Wow. When I do get triggered by something, I can very much identify, oh, you know what? That's 10-year-old Jill kind of responding. Okay, 10-year-old right. Jill, relax, we're good. It's much more of an understanding of how my system works. Right. I wish I could get up here and say I'm at the beach every single day. 
I'm not at the beach every single day mentally. I will just say that I have far more tools. I can recognize what my body and mind are telling me much better. I have more tools. And to be quite candid, I now know what MDMA and psilocybin can do if I ever run into, I just very recently had a trauma point I needed to heal around my partner's death. Seven years, didn't know I had a trauma point. Luckily, I understood what MDMA could do and I was able to heal that trauma point because that was a capital T trauma point that I didn't know about. So knowledge is power in this instance. Oh my God. Knowledge is power. And then also just the fact that you are sharing your journey and your experience and giving people such insight into what the experience has been like for you and how you've been able to come out on the other side of it. Again, not that it wasn't hard work. You put in all of the emotional and the physical hard work to get to where you are today. Yeah. But the fact that you have come out on the other side is really a miracle. I mean, it really is. Well, you know, so thank you for that. I will say that the miracle workers of my therapist and doctor uh, guide are absolutely, they need to be included here too, because I ran the bases, but they put the bases out for me or they made the Mm -hmm. ballpark or however you want to work with that analogy. And I'm not unique. The clinical research, the reason why the FDA is uh, anticipated to approve this therapy in 2024 is that I am not unique. The way that the therapy has been proven to work continues to work. And To be completely candid, I felt so, and I'm going to use the word privileged because this therapy landed in my lap. Let's be honest. I didn't go searching for it. And I felt a huge responsibility. Number one, I wanted to share that psychedelics are not nearly as terrifying as everybody thinks they are, especially MDMA for this treatment. Number two, the treatment can work. Number three, it's not turnkey. You absolutely have to put the time in and and expect some painful emotions to come up. Healing is not fun. And I just wanted to be a voice that someone like me would listen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Between the memoir, the workbook, the YouTube channel, I'm creating the content that if someone like me were looking at this therapy and evaluating it for their own mental health, I'm trying to give that information. So very much a feeling of wanting to give back and help other people in this little way, my patient's perspective that I can. I always say everything comes to you at the right time. So that one person out there who is feeling exactly the way that you were feeling, feeling really hopeless, potential suicide ideation, they just happen upon, whether it's this podcast episode or your YouTube channel, and it's that one sentence that you may say that somehow sparks something in them that they're like, you know what, I'm going to start doing some research into MDMA and what the possibilities are for me, if it's right for me or not. So I really appreciate just all of the effort and the energy and the thoughtfulness that you have put into all of the content that you are putting out there. Your story is valuable. Your voice is valuable. I'm just so grateful that we were able to connect and your story is really incredible. I know that you say it's not unique, but it really is. It's a miracle that you have come this far and that you are full of love and energy. You just have so much life and just so much joy in you instead of all of the difficulties and the hardships that you've gone through. So Jill, 
For anyone who may be listening or watching, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share? You might not know that you have PTSD. Mm. You might just know that you're not comfortable with your body. I Mm. ignored my body's signals for more than 20 years because I had that lovely relationship that regulated my nervous system. But Mm. I was experiencing those symptoms the whole time. And so my message to other folks, um, if your body is off kilter, Mm. one potential option could be trauma trying to talk to you. Go ahead and read some book. The the book I happened to read was the The Body Keeps a Score. But now, since that time, there have been other books out there. Forgive me for not knowing what they are. I'm not super well read on everything yet. Uh, But there are other books that talk about how trauma manifests because I think in our society, and this is my opinion, our society doesn't explain what trauma is. At least it certainly didn't to me, not someone kind of immersed in the mental health field. So my advice to anybody, my journey through this healing process started with me knowing in my body that something was wrong. My physical Mm -hmm. self was not right. If you are feeling that, check out my YouTube, check out The Body Keeps a Score, start looking into MDMA. The MAP site has a ton of information. I've got a bunch of resources on my site that can also help. I would just say, don't ignore it. If if you're unhappy, if your body, because eventually I, I basically got to the point where I crashed and it came with my partner's passing, unfortunately. How lovely would it have been if this therapy had been around for my parents? Oh my God. Like that they wouldn't have crashed and burned. So that's my advice. Just pay attention to your body. Well, thank you for all of the resources and the advice that you're providing. All the information on how to reach out to Jill will be in the episode notes. I want to thank you again for taking time to do this episode. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story and lighting this path for so many other people who may be searching and wanting to heal. And hopefully this will be the first step for them in that journey. Well, and thank you. Thank you, Min, for giving me the opportunity to talk about it, because I think it is super important that people start to learn what options are out there to help them. Thank you again. And I will definitely talk to you soon for sure. Okay. Take care. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Your support means a lot to me, so please subscribe, download, and share with friends and family. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so let me know what resonates for you. Until next time, take care.